Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of Creator Science. About a week ago, I was in Boston, Massachusetts for HubSpot's annual Inbound Conference, my first time at Inbound. I was blown away by the scale of this event. I am on the HubSpot Podcast Network, but I've never been to Inbound before. I was lucky to be invited to come to Inbound as one of HubSpot's creators to hang out in the Creator Cafe, host a meetup, and I also hosted a conversation on stage with John Lee Dumas, the founder and host of Entrepreneurs on Fire. That is an OG podcast in the space if you're not familiar with it. It is an award-winning podcast where he interviews inspiring entrepreneurs. He has over 4,000 episodes with 150 million lifetime downloads, and that breaks down to about 2 million listens per month. He earns more than a million dollars in annual revenue. It's very, very impressive. And he and I sat down to talk about where we see the creator economy going in 2024. So in this episode, you'll hear JLD and I talking about our predictions for the coming year for creators. There are things we agree on. There are things we disagree on. I think you'll really enjoy it. So here's my conversation with John Lee Dumas of Entrepreneurs on Fire, which you'll hear right after this. As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock solid systems, all in Notion to support the business as we grew, and it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ, and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content, and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I've felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ, and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save 10%. Hello. How is everybody? Doing well? Anybody uh, go to the third floor and get the LinkedIn coffee? I think we all got the push notification. Okay. Uh, hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us. My name is Jay Klaus. I host a podcast called Creator Science. It's very meta. I interview other creators about how they've built their business, people like John. Uh, it's on the HubSpot Podcast Network. And I'm joined by the one and only John Lee Dumas the host of Entrepreneurs on Fire, uh, legendary, legendary podcast, early mover in the space, um, with over 4,000 episodes, more than 150 million lifetime downloads, 2 million listens per month, and seven figures in annual revenue. JLD is just getting started. We are here to talk to you about the creator economy in 2024 and beyond. I want to get a little bit of a sense of the room. Uh, who here is publishing content themselves on a regular basis. Okay. How many of you folks are publishing content independently? Okay, fair enough. And how many of you are publishing for your team in-house? Very cool. Okay. Uh, one more question. Who's doing video? And who's doing uh, writing? We'll call it a newsletter. Great. All right. Love to see that we have some 
some uh, full-time creators here in the house. I think, John, we got to start with AI. It's, it's the obligatory uh, topic of the time. I'd love to hear, what do you think about AI? And maybe as a starting point, how are you using it in your business today? Is anybody here in the audience using AI currently? Cool. Show of hands. Looks like maybe 10 or 15%. And I think that's pretty much what I expected and what I've seen across the board. Somewhere between 10 to 15% of active content creators are actively using AI in their business. Uh, with Entrepreneurs on Fire, we're not actively using AI on a day-to-day -day basis. We do use a tool called Podscribe to get transcripts of our podcast pretty accurately and quickly, which has been very effective. Uh, there's been some kind of interesting use cases I've thought about um, when it comes to using AI for a platform like podcasting. And I'll share that now to maybe give some people some ideas or maybe people will be thinking um, along these lines right now that they're actually doing something along these lines. So I had this kind of concept called Dead Legends. Because a lot of people are like, John, like, if you could interview anybody in the world, you've interviewed over 4,000 people, like, who would you interview? And to be honest, most people that I would like have as a dream interview idea uh, are no longer walking on this earth. Uh, people, you know, like Benjamin Franklin or Winston Churchill or Gandhi or all these like amazing humans of our past that, of course, I have no access to sit down and have a conversation with. And so with AI, it's kind of spurred these ideas that are actually pretty cr practical, which is using a tool like a chat GPT to say, how would Benjamin Franklin answer these six questions? And then, of course, ChatGPT in seconds can go and scrape all the information that's ever been written by Benjamin Franklin, about Benjamin Franklin, and probably give some pretty accurate um, responses to those questions. Then you can use another tool to take those answers and feed them in text-based, and it will spit out an audio clip that will speak like Benjamin Franklin. Then you can take a picture of Benjamin Franklin, use another AI tool that will make that MP3 that you feed it into move his mouth like he's talking, and then you can have yourself sitting down on a video and then a split screen and a Benjamin Franklin look-alike, sound-alike, sitting next to you, you asking him questions, him answering you, and now you're having a conversation with the best version of Benjamin Franklin that you can in a pretty easy and seamless manner that you can do and you can replicate at a pretty interesting degree. So the podcast is called Dead Legends. <laughs> I don't have a trademark yet, so nobody can steal my idea, please. <laughs> but like something like that you could do in your area of interest. Maybe it's a sport, maybe it's fashion, maybe it's whatever it might be. And you can use AI to have some pretty interesting conversations with otherwise unattainable human beings. What a time to be alive. <laughs> really interesting. So really interesting potential use cases, but I'm in the same boat as John. I'm not using generative AI that much in my business right now. And so I, it'd be interesting to hear from you, you know, do you have any particular hesitations or things that are slowing you down? I have some of my own reasons as well. But curious to see if there's anything on your mind that you think, I'm looking for it to be able to do this, or this is why I haven't adopted it faster. One thing that I always like to share with my audience is the higher the barrier, the lower the competition. So when you can do something in this world, in life, and specifically in business, that's really hard to do, that's really hard to replicate, the level of competition and the amount of competition is going to be so much smaller as a result. So if you can apply that mentality to what you're doing, you're going to win at a lot higher level, which is why 11 years ago, when I launched Entrepreneurs on Fire, I said, what are people not doing in the podcasting space? And I kind of filtered down to quantity. People were doing a once a week show when they were interviewing entrepreneurs, but nobody was doing twice a week or three times a week because it seemed like it was too much work. And I said, well, what if I did every single day, seven days a week, that is way too much work, but that will scare away my competition. That will create a very high barrier that will ensure that I am one of the only, if not the only, seven-day-a-week podcast interviewing successful entrepreneurs. 
And so that was one thing that really helped my podcast, my business stand out. And here we are 11 years later, 4,000 episodes later, it's still the only daily podcast interviewing the world's most successful entrepreneurs. So to really answer the crux of your question, what makes me nervous about AI is that when you utilize it in a way that makes things easy to do, it's also easy to replicate. And it just means everybody can replicate it. And if you were at Neil Patel's Inbound Talk, the main stage just a couple of minutes ago, he had a whole topic about the Where's Waldo. It was like, how are you standing out instead of just blending in? And so if you have a really great idea with AI, but you do something that's really easy to be replicated, then if you do have success, other people are just going to copy you. And how are you going to maintain your uniqueness and not get saturated with that concept you move forward with? Which is why with my Dead Legends idea, I'm still a major part of that idea. I'm still a human being sitting in the video asking the questions, so that raises the level of difficulty. Because over 11 years, I developed interview skills and public speaking skills and presentation skills that other individuals haven't developed over that time frame. So that's kind of one of my unique selling propositions. Whereas if I just had you know, an AI Benjamin Franklin and an AI person doing that conversation, it might still be very interesting, but if it really took off, then anybody could just copy that with a pretty easy workflow. Do you remember Web3? I remember Web3. I still have dozens of worthless NFTs. And what I learned from diving into Web3 was technology is awesome. Technology should solve problems. And I look at AI as technology, and I'm still looking at which problem does this solve for me? And when that happens, I'll use it. Um, but right now, I, I'm seeing a lot of, hey, we've got a technology that we're trying to create use cases for, and I'm looking at where are the problems in my business that this is going to save me some time. And transcription, you mentioned, is actually one of the first use cases that I found that saved me a ton of time. I used to use uh, a transcription tool that did like an okay job, and then I would have it cleaned up by a human um, based on the transcript, and now I'm using a tool called Cast Magic. Uh, Ramon is here. And it does such a good job on the transcript right away using AI that I don't have to have that human component anymore. That's a perfect like layup. This is a great use case for me. Cast magic. So good. And the other, the other benefit of tools like Cast Magic, what we're seeing is the ability to take a large amount of input, which could be your podcast episode, and create short form content out of it. Now, I agree with you, this is a situation where this is also something that is easy. We're going to see a lot of people replicating this, and we're going to have just like more internet junk. But what I think is an interesting opportunity in the near term is you could use AI to augment your own consumption of information. Let's say you just want to dive really deep on the podcasting space, but there are dozens of people talking about podcasting. You could actually learn what all of the content being created this week says about podcasting by uploading it into uh, ChatGPT or a similar tool and saying, what are your takeaways from this? You could actually augment your consumption, have a greater curation opportunity by using AI. But I, I'm, I'm slower to adopt new technologies post Web3. <laughs> I'm looking for, for some real problems and use cases for myself. I want to move on to podcasting. Let's keep this, uh, let's keep this train going. Uh, you obviously um, have been in the podcasting space for a long time. You have the largest community for podcasters out there. I'm interested to hear your perspective on video podcasts, because I'm seeing a lot of that today. Do we have any podcasters in the house? Raise your hands. Now, any uh, audio-only podcasts? Keep your hands in the air. All right, a lot smaller number. I'm in that category. I'm audio-only. Um, any video podcasts? Just video podcasts? Okay, cool. So the reality is I love video podcasts. And I get asked all the time, like, John, you have an audio-only podcast. Does that mean you hate video podcasts? And I said simply, no. I, I really do love and appreciate video podcasts. The reason why I have an audio-only podcast is simply because of the production time it takes to do a daily podcast, a daily interview with entrepreneurs, and the audio-only side of things is a lot. It's 
to add a video component on top of that is so much more that it might be unmanageable. I probably would not have lasted 11 years, 4,000 episodes if I had gone that route. Now, if I was doing a weekly show, twice a week, maybe three times a month, to me, then it's a no-brainer because the beautiful thing about video podcasts are they're the same content, but now you can take that video and you can utilize all these other amazing platforms that are out there and upload that content, repurpose that content in a very meaningful way via YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, all these different platforms that really do thrive on video is going to allow you to take that video podcast you've done in the podcasting space for maybe Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Apple Music, uh, Amazon Music, Google Play, whatever platform that might be, and leverage it across different forms where an audio-only podcast is not going to perform nearly as well on those video-first platforms that I mentioned. So I love video podcasts. I think there's a lot of great ways you can take them, you can leverage them, you can do some meaningful things with them. Um, and something we'll get to a little bit deeper is how things like YouTube Shorts are becoming pretty new and exciting. So platforms like that can be pretty cool. I agree with you in a lot of ways there. We, we started producing a video podcast 14 months ago. We've been doing audio since 2020, started doing video 14 months ago. And to stand out, to do YouTube well, you have to understand packaging. You have to understand, okay, if my strategy is the recommended page of YouTube, I am competing literally with the Mr. Beast of the world and people who are playing the entertainment game on the homepage. And so I think that there's huge opportunity on YouTube, but I think you have to understand how to play and win the YouTube game because I, I frankly don't think that if you're doing a remote interview show the way I do, and I believe the way you do, it's hard to compete with people like Stephen Bartlett's of the world who are doing in-studio, in-person interviews. You were talking with him at four o'clock today on the main stage. Um, and so to compete, I find that for a remote interview show, you've got to produce things to a high, high degree. I tell my editor, I want our video podcast to be as visually compelling as TikTok, which means that we're doing pretty consistent frame changes, zooms, pans, on-screen animations. It's a big investment. So to do that on a daily basis, it just would be impossible. Yeah, and one of the great things about doing daily interviews with the subject matter experts in their industry is I get to interview people like YouTube experts, and I get to learn from them as I'm being the host and as I'm interviewing them. And it blew me away when I recently interviewed a guy, and he was just breaking down how critical it is just the thumbnail on the YouTube video, oh, yeah. it's everything. It's and everything. he will change his YouTube thumbnail an average of 17 times before he gets it right. And it really takes off in the way that he wants to. Of course, sometimes he gets it right the third time or the 10th time, but sometimes it takes up to 17 times on average to get the right YouTube thumbnail. And unless you're able and willing to put in that kind of energy, those are the people that you're competing against. Totally. Which is again, another reason why I was hesitant about diving into that game, because I'm like, hey, unless I'm gonna do it great, I'm not gonna really wanna do it. And that's why I'm a big believer in the phrase, which I'll kind of circle back to, is how can you become the number one solution to a real problem in this world? And for me, the only way I could do that was niching down into being the only daily podcast interviewing entrepreneurs. So the day that I launched Entrepreneurs on Fire, it was the best daily podcast in the world. It was the worst daily podcast in the world. It was the only daily podcast in the world that was interviewing entrepreneurs. That's specific of a niche, which I think people need to be willing to dive into, niching down until they get to that point where either they are the only fill in the blank, or the competition is just weak enough down there where you can come in day one and dominate. So here's an interesting trend in podcasting you and I were talking about. Yep. The listening statistics of podcasts continues to grow. More people are listening to podcasts than they ever have. Uh, the overall listening time continues to increase. However, for the first time ever, we are seeing fewer people create and publish podcasts. Why do you think that is? So there was definitely a multi-year 
kind of land grab in the podcasting space. When people saw the headlines of Joe, uh, Joe Rogan getting bought by Spotify for you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and other big name podcasts getting bought and a lot of these great conglomerations coming together, you know, fantastic you know, companies like HubSpot creating the HubSpot podcast network and bringing like the top business podcasts together in one amazing place for people to access. You're just kind of, you were seeing this happening for a while. And then of course, you know, something we're all tired, about, tired of hearing about, but it's just the reality. COVID happens and now everybody's at home all day, semi-bored out of their minds and having a lot more time on their hands. And they're like, why don't I just launch a podcast? So podcast creation and hosts skyrocketed during that time frame. And they all followed a very similar and very unsuccessful route, which is, what are the successful podcasters doing? Okay, let me copy that. And so then you had all of these individual podcasters who were becoming, <clears throat> excuse me, becoming these pale, weak imitations of successful podcasts. And nobody wants a pale, weak imitation of a thing when they can have the real thing. What people want is the real, genuine actualness of yourself, like who you are, the transparent version of you, the genuine value that you can bring to the world. That's what people want, but they weren't being delivered that as a listenership. So these podcasts that were being launched by the thousands and thousands were getting zero traction and started dropping off like flies when the world kind of started to get back to normal. And in the last year plus, the podcasts that have been successful are the ones that I was just sharing are those that have said, you know what? This is one single real problem in this world that I can uniquely solve. It's one problem, it's real, it's actually painful to people, and I am uniquely positioned to solve it. I am going to launch a podcast, a content creation series around solving this problem better than anybody else is. And those smaller, nicher podcasts are doing fantastically well, where the broad, vague, I'm just gonna copy what the entrepreneurs on fires of the world are doing, those podcasts not getting traction are dropping off. So there's a clear path to success in podcasting, and the opportunity is fantastic because as you mentioned, the listenership continues to grow, but that clear path is what I mentioned. One solution to a real problem and being the best solution to that problem. Just a quick break for our sponsors and we'll be right back to the show. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash creator. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. 
Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com slash science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. And now back to the show. So this past year, you published your first book, The Common Path to Uncommon Success. I'd love to hear your perspective on books as an opportunity for creators in 2024 and beyond. Awesome. Do we have any published authors out in the audience? A couple of them. Okay, just, just a couple. Any aspiring authors, people that just want to write a book? Some more hands. Few more hands, not a ton, but there's definitely more people out there. Well, those few people that raised your hands may not be a big fan of mine in a couple minutes, um, but I will share with you this. I published my first traditionally uh, published book. It was called The Common Path to Uncommon Success. I enjoyed the process um, because of the audience that I built um, over the, the last 10 plus years. I was able to garner a very big um, upfront advance from HarperCollins. So I had a great publisher, a great editor. I really felt like I had great content from the book because I'd interviewed at that point over 3,500 entrepreneurs. So I was able to draw off of their genius, their knowledge to create what I considered a 17-step roadmap to financial freedom and fulfillment, the common path to uncommon success. I'm proud of the book. I think it's a great book. I love it. But at the end of the day, if I sit back as an individual and I say, was that worth my time. Can I honestly recommend to other creators that it's worth your time and effort to write a book? I would, in most cases, not all, because there is some situations where I do think it would be the case, but in the vast majority, 90 plus percent of cases, I would say it is not worth your time or effort to write a book because it takes so much time, so much effort. The process is so long, long and drawn out that when it comes time that your book is published, a lot, if not most of the content within that book is going to be irrelevant and outdated, and people know it. They know that book is already dusty on the shelf because things are moving so fast. Everything in this world is you know, happening on a minute-by-minute -minute basis, not a month-by-month -month basis anymore, and people want their content today. They want that YouTube video that was published five hours ago. They want that Instagram story that was published within 24 hours. They want relevant content today. So do I love the fact that I wrote my book and I can still pass it out? Yes, because I was somewhat knowledgeable about what I just shared. So I was very intentional about being evergreen with the content as much as I could and just being very structured with what I think will be relevant today and in 10 years. But at the end of the day, People are going to look at a book that was published in 2021 and say, is this really relevant in 2023? And a lot of times the answer will be no. So I think for most people, there's a lot better ways to use your time than to write a traditionally published book. Now, if you're one of those people that are like, I'm just going to sit down this weekend, write an amazing novel or amazing book and publish it on Amazon this coming Monday, and it's going to be out in the world, Awesome, do it, because that could be what people want and what people need, and that could bring in great leads, great traction for you, great authority, great influence. It could open up some doors. But to go the traditionally published routes, I think, is not the right um, situation or path for most people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the other stance. I'm going to try to. Granted, I haven't published a book, so take it with a grain of salt, and maybe I'm romanticizing it. But one of the greatest opportunities I see for creators right now is going a little bit deeper, going more long form. A book is, of course, like an extreme example of that. 
but the amount of rigor and effort you have to go through to create a book worth publishing, on the other side of that, you're gonna have some really strong intellectual property, great frameworks, great methodologies. And you know, every single day, there seems to be uh, new, young, energetic, enthusiastic people who will just tweet me into oblivion because they have the energy to tweet 12 times per day. But what are they tweeting about? They're often tweeting about things that they learn that are well-articulated frameworks, methodologies. I think if you have unique, earned insight into a space and you're willing to go through what sounds kind of painful <laughs> to write a book, you'll come out the other side with some incredible intellectual property that you can leverage in short form. It's, it's probably a great card to play to try to get on some other platform where uh, someone else has an audience they want to bring you on to talk about it. I think, I think it can be done and leveraged well. But what I hear you saying is you got to acknowledge the opportunity cost and see if the opportunity cost is worthwhile to you in this moment. And one thing I don't like about panels and talks is a lot of them just end up being people agreeing with the same ideas. So Jay and I have actually intentionally got together and said, like, where's a couple areas where we can play devil's advocate that we can actually truthfully uh, disagree with each other on some things? Because honestly, I think that's more healthy, more realistic, and it kind of leads to uh, in more interesting conversations. Let's move into a segment I call overhyped and underhyped. Uh, what do you think is overhyped right now? Um, you know, one thing I think is really overhyped is something that I just touched on, but I want to dive back into it because I think it is so important is for a long time, a lot of people say, hey, look at the influencers, look at the authority figures, and just like, and do what they're doing because they're obviously finding success, so do what they're doing. And I saw that happening and working in 2013, 2015, 2018, like in the past years, that was a model that did lead to some success and people would carve out mini niches um, and areas of expertise that they would develop. But that's to me really becoming overhyped in 2023 and beyond. I'm just seeing so many people just tired of seeing these again, pale, weak imitations of other individuals that are just kind of parroting and repeating what everybody else is saying. So what I am really wanting to just get across to everybody in the audience today that's creating content, that's writing content, that's recording content, that's producing content, that's advising other people on their content creation, is to really say to them or say to yourself, hey, can I look in the mirror right now and honestly say that I'm cr I am creating and distributing the number one solution to a real problem in this world? And if the answer is no, you're going to have a really hard time carving out a meaningful niche because unless you're solving people's problems at a really high level, they're not going to find you. They're not going to care about what you're talking about. But on the flip side, if you really are creating and distributing the number one solution to a real problem, people will beat a path to your doorstep. When you are holding the number one solution to their real problem in this world, they will find you, they will talk about you, they will become your evangelists, they will spread the word about the content you're creating and sharing. And if you're the second best solution to their problem or the 10th best solution, they're gonna ignore you because they want the best, they want the best solution, which is fine for you because rec recognize it's all about discovering and uncovering the niche that you wanna get into. It's not about trying to compete with the HubSpots of the world. It's about saying, okay, where is this product or this service coming up short? What are the one and two star reviews of this product, of this service that people are complaining about that I can uniquely come in and service at a meaningful level and carve out some amazingness within this. So the overhyped is just the copying, the being a pale, weak imitation of others. That's what I'm really seeing in the world. It's also a big trap because it's really easy to look at content creators who are getting big numbers on engagement and say, I'm going to mimic their style of content. And often what we're seeing is they've gotten successful enough that they're showing up in your feed uh, they might not even have to be working as hard now as they did to break through in the first place, but they're at a point where it doesn't really matter because numbers are playing in their favor. 
So I see a lot of people who mimic tactics that successful people are doing now, and those tactics aren't why that successful person is successful right now. They're able to do that, it can be successful for them, but it might have taken a different tack to get there. Uh, let me give you an example. Something that uh, I was laughing about yesterday. I love the Tim Ferriss podcast. I get his emails, and they're like the worst designed emails I've ever seen. So should you look at that and say, well, Tim Ferriss is successful. Let me design my email like Tim Ferriss. Send it from tim at fourhourbody.com, which is an interesting choice of all of his platforms to send it, that email from. No, like that's probably just this, this detail that doesn't really matter that much now because he is who he is. But it's easy to look at things and be like, well, if they're successful and they're doing this, I should do that too. And it can actually put you down the wrong path. I've got a, an underhyped Kick idea. it off. So I think every few years, and it's speeding up, we get a new modality of education on the internet. You know, online courses were in and of themselves an innovation. Then we started seeing cohort-based courses where we're actually doing live learning experiences online. And that was an innovation. That was valued more highly. Before all of this, there were just books, you know. I think that I haven't heard anybody talk about AR or VR in the landscape of online education. I think that is a tremendous opportunity that someone's going to figure out they're going to be the best uh, augmented or virtual reality learning experience for people on the internet. And I think that's going to go for a hefty premium because even to buy that gear is going to be at a premium. But somebody's going to win that and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> Underhyped. Uh, producing a massive amount of content. Uh, obviously, I'm a daily podcaster, so it may not be a big surprise that I think it's underhyped, but I, there's, there's a reason behind it that I want to dive into because a lot of people are scared of producing a lot of content because they're like, oh, my audience doesn't want to hear from me that much or I'm just going to oversaturate them or they're going to unsubscribe because they're not, or they're getting inundated from me and from everybody else and there's too much stuff in the world as it is, so I'm just going to hold back and just release one time a week or once a month or this or that. And I get the quality side of things, that's okay. But I think what's under hyped is mass producing your content. I couldn't imagine not doing a daily podcast interviewing entrepreneurs. Do I have an illusion of grandeur that every one of my two million listens per month, like every one of them is listening to every single word that I'm saying or every single podcast? Of course not. They're picking and choosing. Some people listen to every one. Some people listen to one out of 10. But I couldn't imagine not doing a daily podcast because I've put in the reps now for 11 years. I was a very poor podcaster. I was a very bad public speaker. I was a very ineffective presenter when I first started this 11 years ago. But what have I done by mass producing content, by doing a daily podcast, by interviewing people seven days a week? I've put in the reps. I've put in the effort, the work, and that's the only way you're ever going to get good at anything. So if you are wanting to do a podcast or a video show or writing or any form of producing content, to me, it's all about doing that thing. Anybody that you admire in this world that's doing something great right now has done it very poorly millions of times until they've done it okay millions of times until they're now doing it great millions of times. And it always kind of harkens back to this great case study they did where I'll make it very brief because it can get long and boring, but essentially it was this pottery class in college and the, and the professor goes, this half of the class, I'm only going to grade you on your best piece of pottery, one piece of pottery at the end of the semester. This half of the class, only on the quantity, the number that you do. So if you do a thousand, you get an A. If you do a, one amazing piece of pottery, you're going to get an A. And so what happened, this side of the class at the end of the semester, had done like three or four potteries because they were just trying to make the perfect one each time and it looked like crap. So it was a crappy piece. They had never put in the reps and it was just that one piece that got poorly graded on it. The ones over here did a thousand. Not only did they do a thousand, the final product looked amazing because they had become amazing at that craft. So they accomplished both things because they put in the reps by not caring about how good it looked at the beginning. They were just doing it, doing it, doing it to get to the quantity. So what are you doing in your life, 
in your work on a daily basis to get better at your craft that's going to eventually make you great, not today, not tomorrow, but down the line. So underhyped, massive amounts of production. So if I'm listening to this and I want to start a podcast, are you saying I should start a daily podcast? You should start a daily podcast or you should podcast daily and then just pick maybe your best of those seven podcasts after doing seven and just throw away the rest and don't look at those six as being trash. Look at those six as you've gotten better at what you're doing every single step of the way. I like that approach. Just a quick break for our sponsors and we'll be right back to the show. And now, back to the show. I want to talk about threads. Threads. Anybody here on threads? Who thinks threads going to continue to exist in 2024? Not a lot of hands. What? Not a lot of hands in general. What do you guys, what do you guys want from me? <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, what do you think about threads? So... What I think about Threads is it's another platform grab, which is kind of something I think we're going to dive a little bit into, where you're kind of starting to see these big major platforms just say, how can we try to offer everything to you, the individual, so you just come to us for all the things? That's why I like YouTube is now doing YouTube shorts as well, because you might not just want long-term video. So like, how can I do all the things? And then again, when you try to do all the things, you typically do most of them kind of poorly. Whereas, you know, when you're just kind of focused on doing and being the best at one thing, you become great at that one single thing. So I honestly, Threads came out, I downloaded it, I opened up the app, I scrolled for like 30 seconds, I said, this is not for me, I don't need to read more content that's very similar to other platforms I'm subscribed to, like X, like Instagram. I just don't need it, and I just haven't opened it since. And I just don't see myself ever going back into threads until or if there's ever this groundswell where I'm hearing, oh my God, are you seeing what's happening on threads? Then I may be forced to go back into it. But until then, not interested. I'm still bullish on threads. Still bullish. Here's, here's what I like about it, though. Uh, actually, before I talk about what I like about it, because who cares what I like about it, let me give you some data. So last week, X, I would rather say Twitter, but I will be correct and say X, was the number 63 most downloaded app on the App Store. Threads was number two. Whole App Store, second most downloaded app. Now, downloads doesn't mean usage. Time out, time out. How many people had X downloaded in their phone six months ago? Pretty much everybody. So you couldn't re-download X. So of course it's going to be the 63rd. Well, maybe everyone in this room, because we're selecting for techie people, businessy people. Uh, last I saw, Twitter has 400 million users. Uh, I'm looking at some Wait, data right 1. now. 1.2 billion. Twitter, 400, that, I thought, I thought 400 threads, million. Threads had 400. Th Instagram has 1.3 billion okay. users. Twitter has 400 million users. Okay. So here's what's compelling about this. I think that Instagram doesn't even have to, or Threads, doesn't have to compete with Twitter directly for the same users. Instagram can actually grow the pie of short-form writing consumers by introducing Threads to their larger existing audience. There are 120 million Threads users at this point, so they're about more than 25% of of Twitter's size already. I'm still bullish on it. I think, uh, and as, for as much of a reason that I think X continues to just really shoot itself in the foot uh, in functionality and direction and how they treat their users, I think there's a space for it. But if I think that X is self-destructing, I think that LinkedIn might actually fill that void even more so than threats. Hey, before we get into LinkedIn, which I know we will, um, why am kind of bullish as well on what you just shared is because as soon as Instagram launched Instagram Reels, I stopped going to TikTok because I'm like, you know, Instagram Reels kind of fit, kind of fixes my, you know, video laughing short form habit. And I'm already in Instagram posting or looking at other content anyway. So it's so much easier to stay with an app and to just go to Reels right there than it is to like, flip out and press another button. 
So, but Threads is a separate app. This is kind of an issue, I think. I don't know why. Could, I wonder if they'll ever integrate. I think they. I, I don't know. They did it with IGTV. IGTV was a separate app that became into but that, Instagram. But that didn't work. So. But it kind of paved the way for Reels. It kind yeah. of the yeah. It kind of became that. I, I could see it. I'm bullish on it. But I want to talk about LinkedIn too because I think you and I are both bullish on LinkedIn. Uh, what's got you interested in LinkedIn? So I started doing what's called um, a contributor series, which is where LinkedIn has these pretty cool um, long-form articles that are really well-produced and well-done and very informative. And then they allow influencers and authority figures to come in and to add perspectives to these articles and to kind of become what's called like a top voice in that niche. And I feel like that's kind of a really cool way to get interesting individuals to add their two cents to an article. Because, for instance, I think it'd be interesting to read a, an article on LinkedIn that's well-written by somebody I've never heard of that's interesting, but then to bring up Tim Ferriss again, if I knew that Tim Ferriss was just like adding his perspective on a couple points of that article, I'd be really curious to see what his perspective or to maybe even be more specific to this event, if it was a, an, a LinkedIn article about health and wellness and I saw Andrew Huberman was adding his perspective on a couple of those points, he's a person that I really know, like, and trust in that health and wellness space. And if the person that wrote the article, or maybe the article was done by AI, um, isn't somebody who I'm aware of, that kind of adds some credibility and some interest of me consuming that content. Yeah, I think purely from a data-driven perspective, my, my strategy as a creator, and again, the, the business is called Creator Science, so I take like a pretty rigorous look at this stuff. My strategy is social media to email to podcast as a pipeline of my ecosystem. And I'm finding that for similar content, I'm getting like a two to one ratio of people going from viewer of my content on LinkedIn to email subscriber on LinkedIn versus Twitter, two to one. So there's something about that audience uh, and maybe it's a moment in time where the content on LinkedIn historically has been basically garbage and now it's getting better and people are like, oh wow, this is actually an interesting place to hang out. But there's like far less uh, trolls. Um, I don't know if we're allowed to say shit posting, but less shit posting on, on LinkedIn. And it's, it's more effective for getting people into your world. And they, they have a uh, buyer mentality. They have intent, you know? So I think, it's a, I think it's a compelling place to be creating content right now. We've got just a couple more minutes. Um, Maybe I'll just give you kind of the floor to talk about anything that's on your mind, creator economy, 2024. What haven't we talked about that you think people should be paying attention to? One thing that you and I talked about uh, pre-chat was newsletters. I think that'd be an interesting thing to kind of dive into because, you know, newsletters have been around for a long time. They precede almost all these platforms in some way, shape, or form. I think most of us can remember the first newsletter that we ever subscribed to and it used to kind of be like a must-read whenever it came into your inbox because, you know, back in the day, we didn't get a ton of email. There wasn't an over-flooding of all, you know, really well-done, well-produced newsletters. Um, I know there's definitely newsletters in my life that are must-reads even to this day. Um, I don't know if anybody subscribes to James Clear 321 newsletter, but that to me is just like such a well-curated, once-per-week newsletter that whenever it comes into my inbox, I'm like... I am looking forward to reading this newsletter because it is going to be content that is going to make my day, my week, and sometimes my life better. And I enjoy it. It's, it's a part of my morning routine is to get to inbox zero. I think a lot of people like to try to get to inbox zero. And for those people that are going through that routine in the morning like myself, there are newsletters that you are subscribed to that are come in. The ones that do their newsletters well, they are read. The ones that don't are either archived immediately or unsubscribed to. So I think that we are in a, in a world where newsletters are very meaningful. I know that when we have sponsors of our podcast and we couple the podcast sponsorship with a newsletter mention, with a specific call to action on our newsletter, that the conversions for that sponsor will go up, will rise, because people are in the, in the email, there's a link they can click right there, whereas people listening to my podcast might be running on the beach, might be hiking a mountain, might be walking their dog, might be folding laundry, washing dishes, 
not in a place where they can take action in that moment, and then life might take over, and then they don't take direct action, so they never end up taking action. Or maybe it's just a later um, in that week or month when they hear it again, which is why repetition when it comes to sponsorships are so important. So I like newsletters a lot for those reasons when they're really well done. Um, and we definitely look to focus our content and our curation within our newsletters to be read by our listeners on a very consistent basis. Yeah, I am pro newsletter. Um, I'll, I'll leave us on a note. You mentioned James and his newsletter. James was my second guest on the Creator Science Podcast, and he had this line that I have not been able to stop thinking about, and it was, can you create something that is so good that the reader or the viewer, the consumer, has a before and after moment with it? They can remember their life before they interacted with this thing, and they can know how much it changed since interacting with that thing. And I think that's just a wonderful bar to strive for uh, in every piece of content, but just generally with your creator business. Uh, John, thank you for sharing with us. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you to HubSpot for putting us up here on the stage. Uh, if people want to learn more about what you got going on, what should they do? eofire.com. That's the headquarters. Uh, we have a great newsletter there you can subscribe to. And the podcast is Entrepreneurs on Fire. It's a daily podcast where I interview the world's most successful entrepreneurs and a proud member of the uh, HubSpot Podcast Network. Also a proud member of the HubSpot Podcast Network, creatorscience.com. There you can find the newsletter or the podcast, whichever method you prefer. Thank you, guys.